0: What is it that is bothering you today? If the person sitting next to you were able to see inside your heart and mind and see what is troubling you, what would they see? For some of you, it might be health concerns. Something is not quite right and you don't know why. Or maybe you do know why and that's the problem. For some of you, maybe your concern is your family. There are concerns. Problems in regard to relationships, or there are family members that are pursuing perhaps unhelpful paths, maybe even destructive paths. Some of you may bear the pain of being childless. Some of you may struggle with being parents. Some of you who are single might be discouraged about wanting to find a spouse. Those of you who are married may wish you had a better relationship with the spouse that you have. Some of you may be troubled by a lack of finances. Some of you may be troubled at the prospects of managing the finances that you already possess and managing them in a way that's responsible and honoring to the Lord. Some of you may be worried about finding a job. Some of you may be worried about something or other in regard to the job that you already have. These are what we might call earthly or temporal concerns. right? These are the concerns of this world. And then on top of that, there are then spiritual concerns. Some believers are haunted by their past sins, and perhaps by things that have happened to them and may even still be affecting them that stem from their past sins. Some believers are troubled by their present sins. We recognize our own weakness, and we agree with David that our sins are more than the hairs of our head, and we agree with Paul that the willing to do good is present within us, but... The doing of the good is not the good that we desire to do, we do not do, but instead we are doing the very thing that we do not want to do, as the apostle speaks in Romans 7:18 and 19. And we understand that even when we are at our best, we still fall short of the glory of God in many ways and Some of you may be troubled because you know the reality of what Peter spoke when he said that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as we find in 1 Peter 5.8. And maybe you know the experience of that verse all too well. You know what it's like when Satan is trying to devour you. Life in a fallen and sinful world is full of trouble. And therefore we find in the book of Job, that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And even our Lord Jesus says to us, John 16, 33, in this world you have tribulation. And we believe him. We we know that from hard experience. And so what do we do with all of these troubles that are around us, and all of these troubles that are inside of us? How can we possibly avoid being overcome and swallowed up by all of them? Well, this morning we will find in the opening words of John chapter 14, Christ's antidote for the troubles that we face. And so if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records here the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under under two main headings. First of all, Don't be troubled. And secondly, Jesus is the way. Don't be troubled. Jesus is the way. Now these words of Jesus in verse one, do not let your heart be troubled, are not words that are spoken at random, nor without reason. If we look at these words in the the context in which Jesus spoke them, and especially as we've been working through the, the Gospel of John in John chapter 13, these last couple of weeks, we can understand why the disciples might have been getting uneasy at this point in the evening. There were several unsettling things that had happened just shortly before Jesus spoke these words. If we reflect on the second half of John chapter 13, in verse 21, Jesus himself became troubled in spirit and announced that one of them was going to betray him. How's that for a stressful meeting among friends and colleagues? The beloved leader who had already been acknowledged to be the son of the living God, announces that he is going to be betrayed, and not just by anyone, but by one of the twelve, one of the inner circle of his followers. In verse 33, Jesus had said he was only going to be with them a little while longer. They would seek after him. They wanted to be with him where he was going, but where he was going, they could not come. And then in the last four verses of chapter 13... Jesus and Peter had had that exchange in which Peter expressed his desire to follow after Jesus right then and proclaimed his willingness even to lay down his life for Jesus. And to that, Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, any one of those incidents, individually taken... Would well, seem to be enough reason for somebody to become unsettled, right? Jesus is going to be betrayed. That's unsettling. Jesus is going away. The disciples can't come. That's unsettling. And Peter, the boldest and most outspoken of the twelve, is going to deny Jesus. Taken all together, this makes for a pretty disturbing evening. The disciples were not anticipating this at all when they went up into the upper room that night with Jesus to celebrate that Passover. Their world was being torn to pieces and their expectations are being shattered. And so it's not without cause that Jesus says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. But we might well ask, how could they help it? The comfortable certainties that they had grown accustomed to were all going away and everything appeared to be turned upside down and yet Jesus says do not let your heart be troubled. Now at first glance it might seem like this is telling a weak and exhausted person to be strong or telling someone who's struggling with depression to just cheer up. Is Jesus being flippant here or being being glib telling them something to do which they have no resources to do? Well no, of course not. And We know this because Jesus immediately shows the disciples what to do so as not to allow their hearts to be troubled. He gives them the antidote. He explains to them why and how they ought not let their hearts be troubled. So let's, let's look at what he says. He says, first of all, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, it's not immediately clear here whether the verbs for believe ought to be translated as indicative verbs in the sense of you do believe, you do believe in God, you do believe also in me, or whether they ought to be translated as imperative verbs, commanding the disciples to believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The uh, the New American Standard and the English Standard Version render both of the verbs as imperatives. And so that's why we, we read, believe in God, believe also in me. And though the, the same verb is used in both clauses, the King James uh, translated the first verb as indicative and the second as imperative. It said, ye believe in God, in other words, you do, believe also in me, the command. And so in either case, whether, whether the verb should be taken as a command, or as indicating that they actually did believe, or perhaps some of both, it is clear that faith is the solution to the problem of troubled hearts. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. One way or the other, it is faith that is the antidote to the troubled heart. But what does Jesus mean here when he says believe? We use the word believe sometimes in different ways. Sometimes the word believe is used almost in the sense of a wish or in the sense of positive thinking. I remember uh, years ago back when I lived in, in Indiana, I was up in Indianapolis and I think, I think maybe the Colts at that time were, were in the NFL playoffs or something and uh, I, I remember seeing in, in big letters on the side of a building, believe, right? As if to say, believe the Colts will win. But this is Not true faith, this is simply a wish or a desire. As we all know when it comes to sports, the words of Solomon were true when he says, The race is not to the swift and the battle is not to warriors. Neither is bread to the wise or wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. That's part of what makes sports so interesting, right? You can have the best team in the world with the best record on the books, but if they're not putting points on the board that particular night, and the other team is... They're going to lose, regardless of how many well-wishers and how many hopeful fans they may have in the crowd. All of that to say, this is not the kind of belief that Jesus is calling the disciples to, and to us, when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Rather, Jesus is calling them to a well-grounded and hearty trust in God the Father and in himself, a well-grounded and hearty trust that is based not upon a whimsical wish, but rather a trust that's based on the truth of God's revelation. Now, being Jewish men, these disciples had God's revelation already in the Old Testament Scriptures. And also they had God's greatest revelation of himself there before them in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. As John had expressed it earlier back in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus was the one who revealed, who explained God the Father. He was the image of the invisible God. And Jesus' words in verse 7 here of chapter 14 are even more striking when He says, if you had known Me you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. In other words, in knowing Jesus, the disciples knew the Father. In seeing Jesus, as it were, they saw the Father. It's not that the Father and the Son are one and the same person. They are certainly not. There's one person of the Father and another person of the Son, but the Father and the Son are yet one in essence, one in substance, one in being. The Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus Christ revealed the Father to the disciples because he and the Father are one. As he says in John 10.30, the disciples had this revelation of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. They had been with Jesus for years and had listened to him teach. Likewise, they had the Old Testament scriptures. And it was therefore on those bases that Jesus summoned them to believe. He summoned them to this hearty trust in the Father and this hearty trust in himself as the only begotten Son of God. And so what difference then would it make when hearts were troubled or were tempted to be troubled as their hearts surely were that night? What difference would it make to believe in God and believe also in Jesus Christ? Well, true faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ would make all the difference. David could say in Psalm fifty-six, eleven, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And if David could say that, then how much more should these men, the eleven who remained with him in the upper room, how much more should they have been able to say the same? Because they had walked side by side with the very Son of God here in this world. And they had beheld His trustworthy and gracious character. They knew of his mercy toward the weak and toward the sick. They knew of his compassion toward sinners. They had seen his miraculous powers, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, the stilling of the storm. They themselves had exercised miraculous powers in casting out demons and healing diseases as Jesus had given them authority to do. They themselves had seen how Jesus could provide plenty of food for a crowd out of merely a few fish or a few loaves of bread. They had seen the Lord provide for them when he had sent them out on mission without a staff or bread or bag or money or extra clothes. In everything, the Lord had graciously supplied their needs. He who had generously cared for them and provided for them in the past could no doubt do the same in the future. Surely they too then could say with David, In God I have put my trust... I shall not be afraid. In other words, faith in God the Father and in His blessed Son should make all the difference in the world for those who are struggling with a troubled heart, because true faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ means trusting that God will take care of us, not as we think is best, but as He thinks is best here in this world. But even more, ultimately, faith in God looks beyond the horizons of this world and looks, looks to eternity, to our true home, with God through Christ. And when we truly believe in God, this means that we believe that He is sovereign over all things that come to pass. Even as David proclaims in Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. To truly believe in God as we ought means that we receive the testimony that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar when he said to him that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. Daniel 4:23. We must believe those words of Proverbs 19:21 that many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Such is the sovereignty of God. We are to believe in God and in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by whom we are reconciled to the Father. And this means that though we have deserved judgments both Punishments in this world and in eternity for what we have done. Nevertheless, being reconciled to God the Father through Christ, we have escaped the condemnation which was hanging over us. And we trust that now we are the recipients of His grace, such that whatever comes to pass in this world, God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose having been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ, we can therefore face all disturbing circumstances that come to us with the same spirit that David enunciated in Psalm 27 when he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Now this is not to say at all that difficult things will not happen to us. Certainly, difficult things will happen to us. They do. In this world, we will have tribulation. We will have trouble. We will be disturbed by disturbing events. But in the midst of them, we must take courage because Jesus has overcome the world. And all things that come to us are intended for our good. And notice here in the chapter that Jesus goes on to elaborate a particular reason why the disciples should not let their hearts be troubled He says in verse 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus had already told them that he was going away, and he told them that they could not follow him now, but now he gives them comfort. He was going to his father's house to prepare a place for them. He wasn't abandoning them, he wasn't leaving them on their own as sheep without a shepherd he was departing from them for their well-being so as to make a preparation for them now in going to prepare a place for his people what was what was Christ going to do well he wasn't going up to heaven to build a building or to do some remodeling so to speak in his father's house there already were many dwelling places rather Christ was going into the heavenly tabernacle as a high priest on behalf of his people. As we read about that this morning in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, to be our high priest, to be our mediator. We find later on in Hebrews 9, verses 23 and 24, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ was going to his Father as our high priest, as our advocate to make intercession for us as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And this is how Christ makes preparations for us. And then in the meantime, he has given us his word and his Holy Spirit so as to prepare us for heaven. And not only was Christ going to prepare a place for them, but he also assures them in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And so Jesus assures them that he's not just just going away and and leaving them and forgetting about them, but that he is coming back, and he's coming back for them. And he also adds there in verse 4 that they even knew the way to the place where he was going. Now, it's always, in my experience, a good feeling when you know where you're going. You know, on the contrary, that feeling when you're going to somewhere that is unfamiliar. And you're checking on your phone to see if you're on the right track or perhaps in another uh, time and place you might be checking the directions that you had printed out or had written down by hand. And you're going through unfamiliar territory. You're wondering, "Did did I miss the turn? But you know the relief then. ...that comes when you're back on familiar ground. You can turn the GPS off, you can put the directions away or whatever. You know where you're going. The journey is a little bit more easy, more enjoyable... ...because you know where you're going. And Jesus reassures his disciples here by telling them... ...that they already know the way to the place where he is going. All of these things were meant to encourage the disciples. All of these things were meant to strengthen their hearts... ...so that they would not be troubled... Even though, as we've seen, their preconceived notions of the way things ought to be were coming unraveled, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And these words are for our encouragement as well. Obviously, we're not the disciples sitting in the upper room with Jesus that night. We're not hearing for the first time these shocking words of betrayal and denial and so forth. And Jesus is going away we're not them. We're not in their position, but at the same time, we're not much different than they were. We're flesh and blood like them. We're often inclined toward discouragement, toward depression. Our hearts get troubled for various reasons. We worry about our possessions, whether we don't possess as much as we think we ought to or think we need to. We worry about relationships with, with family, with friends. We worry about politics and government. We're worried about jobs or unemployment. Sometimes our hearts are troubled simply by uncertainty, the uncertainty of what will happen to us in our lives, the uncertainty as to, to what we ought to do when we have a decision that we need to make and we're not sure, we're not sure what the right decision is. Sometimes our hearts are troubled by our sinfulness that, are, that we find still lurking there. To borrow the words of J.C. Ryle, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out, partly from inward causes and partly from outward, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. This is life as we know it. This is life as we experience it. And yet Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the good news is that the comfort that he gave to them is equally applicable to us as his believing people today. The way of avoiding a troubled heart is just as valid for us as it was for them. The antidote is faith. True faith in God the Father and in the Son worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And of course, we need to be clear that believing in God and in Christ is not the same thing as believing that the trouble that we are facing will disappear. Right? The words of Jesus in verses 1 through 4 do nothing to take away all that the disciples were troubled about. Judas was still going out to betray Jesus. Jesus was still going away, and they could not follow him. Peter was still going to deny Jesus. Right, Jesus's words in verses one through four do nothing to eliminate any of those things, but Jesus urges them, nonetheless, to look beyond their current horizons, to look in faith to both God the Father and to He Himself, and also to look to Christ's faithfulness, to look to their future home with God in heaven and Christ's care for them. And the same is true for us, trusting in Christ not the same thing as believing that the problems will go away. Oftentimes the problems do not go away. They often remain. But trusting in the Lord changes our outlook such that even though the problem that was troubling us remains, our hearts are no longer troubled by it. And how is it that this can be? With the trouble still lurking out there, the trouble not going away, how can we face it and yet not be troubled? when we believe in God and in Christ we receive the, the free gift of salvation our sins that had separated us from God are now forgiven we're no longer God's enemies but now his friends and having been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus on the cross and by his resurrection having that relationship with God restored and now being at peace with him we know that our future home with God for all eternity is cured and we know that God now cares for us right here and right now. And we learn to trust Him in everything that may come upon us that may trouble our hearts. We can do what Peter said when he said in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety because He cares for you. We learn to cast our anxiety on Him. Because we know that he cares for us. And by his grace, we learn to put into practice those words of Paul in Philippians 4 6, when he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then from his grace, we receive peace. And that's why Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, Philippians 4 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We understand that under God's sovereign hand, all things are working together for our good as his people in Christ. So often we think we know what's good for ourselves, and we know the the ends and the means that we desire to see in our lives, but God knows better for us and what God plans is best. Sometimes if we were to have our way and life were to work out the way we had planned, it would end in our destruction in one way or another. God is the one who truly knows what we need, and therefore when he gives it to us, we can trust him and continue walking with him. And so we're reminded here that peace is found by trusting the Lord, by pouring out our hearts and our requests to him in regard to those things that tempt us to be anxious, we don't naively believe that the troubles are not real or that they will never affect us, but rather we look to the Lord in that trouble and we find peace in Him. And therefore, we find the reasons why our hearts must not be troubled when we look to Him. And that brings us then to our second main point, which is Jesus is the only way. And so uh, let's look down to, to verses 5 and 6 after Jesus had provided this, this consolation for his, his troubled friends, telling them uh, that he was going to the Father to prepare a place for them and that they knew the way to where he was going, we find that Thomas uh, begs to differ with Jesus. Jesus had just said, you know the way, and he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus, you said we knew. We actually don't know. And the discourse that Jesus had delivered to his disciples that night in the upper room was no doubt, in many respects, confusing for these men. And if you think about Jesus' ministry as a whole, so many of the things that he had said to the disciples were confusing to them. Sometimes he speaks literally, they take him figurative, figuratively, sometimes Jesus speaks figuratively, and they take him literally, and sometimes confusion just abounds. Now, I'm not saying that You or I would have done any better if we'd been there. We might have been just as slow or perhaps even slower at understanding what Jesus was saying. Nevertheless, the point is that the disciples didn't always understand what Jesus was getting at when he first said it to them. Thomas didn't get it here. But even though he didn't understand, he actually did know more than he thought he knew. Jesus said that they knew. Thomas says we don't. And Jesus says, "Actually, you do know where i'm going." So Jesus proclaims to them the way that the way to, to go to the place where he is going he says in verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me Now if we stop and think about jesus's words here these these are strong and striking words. There was one theologian who remarked that no prophet, teacher, or apostle ever used such words. They are the language of one who knew that he was God. And years ago, I uh, came across a, a little tract um, in which it was comparing some of, some of the words that Jesus spoke at various points in his ministry with the words of various leaders of other false religions. And... Um, one, uh, one that I came across uh, was uh, one religious leader who said, you know, unless God covers me with a, with a cloak of mercy, I'll have no hope. And Jesus, on the other hand, says, as we saw a while back in John chapter 8, which one of you convicts me of sin? Right? And there's a big big contrast. And, and one, of the, one of the contrasts that was, was in this tract had John 14, 6 contrasted with... Uh, with some other religious leader who said, you know, I'm only a teacher in search of the way of truth. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's a clear difference here. Jesus knew who he was as the Son of God, knew that he was the only way of salvation. He proclaims that he is that way. Trusting in him is the way to God, the way to eternal life. His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and now his mediation as our great high priest is the way and the only way by which anyone can be reconciled to God and restored to fellowship with him. Trusting in Christ is the way by which we receive the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the only way because he goes on to say that no one comes to the Father except through him. As Paul would put it in First Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. The only way to come to God is through the mediator. And if you don't come through the mediator, you do not come at all. Jesus is the way. He likewise is the truth. He himself is truth incarnate. He is the true revelation of God. As he makes clear in verse 7, to know him is to know the Father. Or as John expressed it back in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus revealed the glory of the Father. In seeing him, the disciples saw grace and truth. Truth is a revelation of things as they are. And in seeing Jesus, the disciples saw the truth about God. And from Jesus, they learned the truth about the world. And they learned the truth about themselves. And likewise, Jesus proclaims that he is the life. See, it said back in chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The Father has life in himself, and the Son also has life in himself. Now, needless to say, you and I, do not have life in ourselves. Our very existence is a dependent life. Our existence is a dependent ex- existence. But Jesus is not only a true man, he is also true God, and therefore he has life in himself, and he gives this life, spiritual life, to those whom he wishes, as he says in John 5.21. Peter uh, confessed to Jesus that he alone has the words of eternal life. And those who follow Jesus have the light of life and do not walk in darkness, as we find in John eight twelve. Jesus has life in himself, and he gives spiritual and eternal life to all who believe in him. And therefore, as he is the way and the truth and the life, Jesus is all that we need. Jesus is the only one that we need. And no one can come to God the Father but through him. To have seen him is to have seen the Father. To know Jesus is to know God the Father. And these words, beloved, are words of comfort for all who know Jesus Christ. This is the reason why we should not let our hearts be troubled. Because we trust in God and we trust in Christ who is the way to God. When we are troubled, we can come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The ear of our omnipotent creator, the ear of the sovereign ruler of all things is open to us through the mediation of Christ, our high priest. Jesus has, as he said here, gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. Jesus' ascension into heaven prepares the way for our going to heaven. And so, believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Live like you believe in Him. And don't give way to fear or panic. Keep going to the throne of grace and resting in the Lord, even when everything seems to be swirling out of control. And if you do not know Christ, if you've never come to saving faith in Him, please understand from jesus's own words here the absolute and supreme importance of knowing him that he's the only way to god no one comes to god except through him and please know that jesus died for sinners for sinners like me and for sinners like you please know that jesus rose again and ascended to the right hand of god the father for sinners like me and like you And through the proclamation of his gospel, Jesus calls you to believe in him. He calls you to turn away from your sins and to seek to live a new life. And so come to God through Jesus and find peace today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for these words of comfort from Christ to the disciples. And Lord, how we need to hear them. How we need to be admonished again to believe, to believe in God, to believe also in Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would not be troubled by the disturbing events that come upon us or that loom around us in the world, but rather we ask, Lord, that we would rest our hearts upon you. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, and we thank you for your kindness and grace to us. We thank you for your sovereign ruling over all things and working out all things for the good of those who love you. Pray that you would bless us now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.